severely overestimated the time it would take to take off a guitar and get to the front. <laughs> First off, can we, can we actually all just turn around and give a giant applause to our tech team in the back? Um, <laughs> whatever, whatever that was had nothing to do with any mistakes. I, I, I kind of know what I think happened, but it's, it's all a glitch. And, and they work tirelessly in this crazy world. You know, it's, it's funny, about a year or two ago, None of us thought in church world that we had to learn to be videographers and producers and all those kinds of things. But that's the world we live in. And, you know, for people at home to be able to be part of worship, sometimes things just go a little awry. But they, they work so hard, not just on Sunday mornings, but a lot of those folks are, are here Wednesdays and throughout the week helping, you know, pull wires and do all kinds of things. So if you see them, thank them. Uh, they are the, the true heroes that make worship happen behind the scenes that you never notice. Um, much like moms, who are the true heroes that we celebrate today, that do all these things that we don't notice. Um, this morning, we are going to spend time in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 15. Um, and, and as I was thinking about this passage, I, I was thinking back to my days working in youth ministry. And, and here's, if, if you ever run into a youth pastor, first of all, thank them and hug them. Um, second, here's probably one of the things that holds true for every single person that has ever led uh, youth ministry in any capacity, volunteer otherwise. Um, the high point of any student experience is the last night of a mission trip. It just is. I don't know why. I don't know what emotional turmoil gets played in the minds of middle and high schoolers, but it always seems to be that that's the kind of the height of, of the year, is that last day. And being on mission in general, and so every time I would take students to various places over the, over the 10 plus years of, of doing youth ministry, inevitably you would get to this last night and the emotions would be high and the joy would be felt you know, in, in, in a wonderful and good way. And then that's followed by the lowest point of youth ministry, and that's the two or three weeks after you get home from the mission trip. Why is that? See, I think uh, over the years I've cracked the code, and I'm not going to be presumptuous, but I think here's what's happening. When we as students or as adults go on mission, if you've ever been on a mission trip in any way, you know this. There's one week where you, just for once in your life, are actually doing and being exactly what God has called you to do and be in every way. You are living with a community of believers you are on mission serving people in the community together. Chances are, if your youth pastor is worth his salt, he told you you're not allowed to bring your phones, so you don't have those to tell you all the things you're missing. FOMO is a real thing. In case you don't know that, FOMO is fear of missing out. Uh, welcome to the millennial language. <laughs> but, but you have all these things, and you're with each other, and you're praying, and you're worshiping God daily, and things are centered on him, and the cares that you left at home are just there, they're at home. And so the reason it's such an emotional time is because you're being and doing exactly what God has made you to be and do. Wouldn't it be great if we could all just all the time be doing and being exactly what God has called us to be and do? But that doesn't work that way. Inevitably, we come back home, and the lives that you left are still there, and no one else back home that's friends with you had the same experience you did, so they don't get it. And you just kind of go back and do the things that you want to do. It's a youth example, but it's something that we struggle with as, 
as all of us, adults, students, kids, I don't care if you're 8 or 80, we all struggle with staying connected to God. And the reason we struggle with it is because staying connected to God is unbelievably hard. It just is. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not. You know this. You feel it. There are times where you just have that, that perception of distance where you just don't feel connected to him and you wonder why. And I think there's really three major reasons why we struggle to be connected to God. Number one, it's that I'm not sure we fully know how to do it. If we're honest with ourselves, we all know we, well, you should need to be connected to God more. You need to spend more time with God. What does that mean? Do we really know what it means to be more connected? The second is, there's a mountain of stuff that gets in the way. Who here has at least three things going on today that are going to get in the way of being connected to God? Right? We have sports practices and, and jobs and the stuff that we bring home from our jobs because we didn't get it done at our job. We have kids to raise and get to bed. And by the time they're in bed, we're just, we've had that one hour of peace before we crash ourselves. Right? You have a million little projects. Maybe you get some free time, but then, well, there's the honey-do list of stuff at home that, you know, that list that needs to get done that never gets done. So even if you have free time, you don't have free time. Things get in the way of our time staying closer and connected to God. And the third is a little harsher, but I think it's true for all of us. It certainly is true for me, if I'm honest with myself. Oftentimes, I just don't know that we care enough to deal with one and two. I think it's easy to get in the rut. To worry about the day and the next day and to take life one day at a time and just to try to get done what we need to get done. Right? Today we're going to look at the final I am statement in John 15. This is the last of the, of the I am statements. The last time I preached I kind of walked through all of them really quickly. This is the final one and we're going to learn about what it means to be connected to God. To stay closer to him. And how we do that practically. So let's, let's take a look. Let's read through this together and let's dive in in John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In some ways, um, this passage is rather obvious. I think as we read it, right, it's, it's, it's not even a, a case of, you know, all right, it's a metaphor, who are, who are we in this, who is God in this? He tells us, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. <laughs> and God's the guy that takes care of the vineyard. He gives us all the things we need to know. And so in some ways, this is an obvious passage, right? If we stay connected to Jesus, well, then... Things will go well for us. If we don't stay connected to Jesus, we will die and apparently we will be burned. But let's dig in a little larger because John's words drip with meaning when he speaks in his gospel. He's one of those poetic kind of guys that just everything has little nuances and meaning. And so there's a few things that we need to unpack before we get to the how do we do all this kind of thing. The first is this. The image of a vineyard in Jewish culture is incredibly common. You see it all over the place. Um, Isaiah 5 is just one other example. There's psalms galore. You can go through the psalms and you'll see all over the place that this this metaphor of the Jewish people being thought of as the vineyard and and the Lord being the one who tends to the vineyard isn't anything new. But something does change here. There's a shift of characters. Like I said, this is the last time that Jesus makes an I am statement in John. And this is the only time that the father gets brought in as an active character. You know, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the bread of life. He goes through all these things, but when he says this one, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and, and, and the father is the one who tends to the vineyard. He has this active role in it. And what we see is John is shifting the metaphor so that there's no longer a vineyard that the Lord is taking care of. It's not like each one of us are individual little vine stalks and the Lord just walks through the garden and prunes. No, we, it is now just one singular vine. And, and Jesus is the vine itself. We get relegated from being a whole vineyard. Just to, We're the branches now. We are the thing that is connected to Jesus. And the metaphor carries through. We cannot, just like a vineyard bear any fruit without being connected to the vine. We are those branches on that vine. Second, there's an issue that we run into in this passage when we're looking at this idea of pruning. Um, There's no way around it. It sounds harsh and scary. Like, what is the Lord saying? If we don't bear fruit, then we're going to be cut off and burned? I don't know about you, but that can be terrifying. What if I'm not producing enough fruit? Am I producing enough fruit? Am I fruitful at all? What does it mean to be fruitful? I better find out because I don't want to be cut off. Right? It can become scary really quick, but we need to understand a few things here. This passage is not in any way a threat. It's rather just a statement. What he's saying is, we, if we are not connected to the vine, we're not going to bear fruit. This is why this metaphor is so brilliant, because you can't argue with it. You can't be a branch laying dead on the ground and going, but, but I can produce fruit. No, you can't. 
It's not that the Lord comes maliciously and just goes through the vineyard and starts chopping off branches off of the vine. No. What he's doing is saying, those branches that are already dead, I'm going to cut them off. He's not killing the branches. (laughs) It's just a reflection of the reality. Those who abide in me will bear fruit. The fruit is not the thing that saves us. The fruit is the natural result of a person who is saved. If you have your faith and you place it in the Lord Jesus Christ, inevitably one of the things that will come of it is that you will grow in him, you will come to understand him more, and you will start to naturally bear fruit. It's not a fruit competition. If the branch next to you has seven grapes and you have six, that's not a better branch. We're not competing for fruit. (laughs) But rather, we need to understand that the Lord does oftentimes remove branches that are not fruitful. The second thing he does is pruning. Now, pruning sounds painful, but pruning is actually a pretty great thing. For our honeymoon, Britta and I went to Napa Valley um, and spent some time among other places, you know, Yosemite and some other spots, but we spent some time in Napa Valley and we learned all about winemaking and and the process and the vineyards and the grapes. And, And if you don't prune a vine, it'll die. It's a natural part of the process. If, you, if you're gardening at your house, you know, what do you do with your rose bushes? You prune them back. We have two. We killed one the first year we lived in our house because we didn't properly prune it. It's just a natural thing. Now, to us, that's painful. But what he's saying here is the Lord's ultimate interest is that you would bear as much fruit as possible, that you would most resemble a healthy branch connected to the vine. And so if he needs to inflict little things... If there's little struggles that will carry you through and refine you and cause you to be more like him, he has no issue causing those little bouts of pain. We do this as parents. (laughs) We punish our kids, not because we hate them, but because we want them to be better. And we hope that sometimes punishments lead to reflection, which causes them to be better. So the Lord prunes. Now here's what's interesting. The, The words that we have for pruning in this passage. This is one of the few times, I'm not a huge fan of going Greek or Hebrew, but it helps here. The words in verse, in verse 2, the word for pruning, and in verse 3, the word for clean are related words. The word for pruning is kathire, and the word for cleaning is katharoi. Sound pretty similar, right? And they both come from this root that means to be cleansed, to be purified. So when we're pruned by God, it's not that God, you know, just chops stuff off to cause us pain. No, he's cleansing us. He's purifying us. He's making us better. And so the Lord will do that. The Father's role is to prune. Pruning can be scary, but ultimately it leads to more life as we are part of the vine. Then we get to the meat of it. The Lord says, abide in me or you won't bear fruit. And we can't argue that. We can't say, no, yes, I will. Because all of us have picked up the dead branches in our yards. They're not going to flower. We have a tree right now that's split in our yard that is kind of off the trunk, and it's hardcore struggling. It's probably not going to make it because it fell off of the trunk and its source of life. As Christians, we believe that Christ is our source of life. And so if we are not connected to him We don't bear fruit. And just in case you missed it, 
At the end of that section, Jesus drives it home. And he doesn't just say, if you're not connected to me, you won't bear fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. What does he mean here? To get get the idea of what, what God's talking about, we need to understand two things. We need to understand this idea of common grace and this idea of total depravity. And I know that sounds really dark, but stay with me. Common grace is the idea that those that know Jesus and follow him and those that don't know the Lord or reject him all still enjoy some level of common grace of of God. You have friends that don't know the Lord. They woke up today. They experienced joys and love and celebrations they have good days and bad. See, there's, there's common grace. Because what does it say? The wages of sin is death. The very fact that there's a single human being that wakes up that doesn't know the Lord, that doesn't have their faith in Christ, that lived today, that's common grace. That means that some level of God's presence still rests with every person on this earth to some degree. And if it didn't, there would be no good within them. So when you have friends that say, I, don't, I think Jesus is hogwash, but you know, I go and volunteer at the Red Cross because I have a good heart. Where do you think you got that good heart? Where do you think that good heart's getting sustained from today? It's the common grace of God. You just don't know it. The Lord works through everybody. Without him, we are utterly capable of nothing. And that's what total depravity is. Total depravity says that if God is not in us somehow, through common grace or through our presence with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we would have no good in us. If you ever go to another church and they try to tell you that inherently people are good, please get up, leave quietly. Don't ever go back. I know that sounds mean, but guess what? We are inherently not good. That's the whole reason we need Christ. Because apart from the Lord's blessing and common grace, we are nothing. We have no good thoughts. We have no good deeds. We have no good hearts. We have no inherent desire to act in a moral way. All of those things, whether we know it or acknowledge it or not, come from him. And so we have to stay connected to the vine. So how do we do that? I think there's four things this passage gives us that really help us to hone in how we get to be more connected to God. There's four. Three of them are obvious and right in the passage, and one of them is kind of what's around the passage. The first one is this. We stay connected to God through prayer. Verse 7 tells us this. Tells us if we ask, if we abide in him and he, his word abides in us, ask anything in his name and he will give it to us. Now, this is one of those passages that gets used by like prosperity gospel teaching of if you ask the Lord for a million dollars hard enough, well, he'll give it to you. Well, he hadn't given to me yet. Well, you're not asking hard enough. Maybe you should sow a seed into our church so that you can then get more back. No, it's not how it works. This isn't an open invitation to ask God for that new boat that you want. No. (laughs) Here's what it's saying. It's an if-then statement. He's not saying just, hey, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He's saying, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you can ask for anything and I will give it to you. 
Here's, here's the implication. If we are abiding in him, and he in us, and we are spending time with the Lord, mainly through prayer, personal prayer, not me praying up front and you praying with me. If we do that, our hearts will slowly be changed by the Lord. He will do a work in us, and he will start to cause in us, naturally, a desire for the things of him. And so our requests, it's not that God just gives us whatever we want in our selfish hearts. God changes our hearts to want the things that he wants. And then he gives us those good things. Right? It's like the Lord changing my kid's heart to want to eat the foods that he should be eating and start asking for all of those. And we go, yeah, we'll give you those foods. Right? The Lord changes our desires if we spend time in prayer with him. If we look to him, he will shape us. And there will come a point where we are so in tune that we will want the things that God wants. And he will give us those things. To get to this point, we have to. We have to spend time in prayer. If prayer is not a regular part of your daily life, on your own, you and God... You, you gotta make it one. I'm deeply convinced that prayer is one of the most neglected aspects of the Christian life, but yet it's so vitally important. And not that corporate prayer, but that individual prayer together. J.I. Packer, who's a brilliant theologian, he's a Canadian, he died just last summer, I think in July. He, he says this in his book, Knowing God, men who know their God, and women too, you're not exempt, Men who know their God are, before anything else, men who pray. And the first point is where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. If there is little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. If you're wondering, how does this abiding thing work? got to start praying. And maybe it's awkward at first. Maybe you have no idea how to pray. Maybe find an elder or a leader or someone you love and respect who's a fellow Christian who seems to be great with this and ask. Maybe start praying with them. Maybe you start reading through the Psalms and see how the people prayed because the Psalms are prayers of various kinds. Either way, start to think about how your prayer life gets improved because you need to spend time with him. How can you abide in someone and grow in someone and understand someone if you're spending no time with them. Think of a relationship with your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend where you just, like, you hang out, you're together, you're married, you're dating, but you never talk to each other. How well are you going to know them? Understand them? Be in tune with them? You're not, right? Prayer is just so vital. The second is this. We must abide in love of Jesus, and carry that love to other people. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the second one, because next week when Paul's back, he's going to unpack the second part of this from, from verse 12 on, and a lot of it is about the love that we have, and, and, and Jesus moves the love of God to the love of people, and moves people from disciples to friends, and so he'll talk about that love that we ought to have for one another in much greater detail, but I'll, I'll just say this. If you want to learn to abide in Christ you got to love. And especially, you got to love among your church community. you got to show up. 
Maybe, I mean, I, I'm not, this is not a call, like, if you're online or church, it's not a bad thing, you know, safety is, you know, but, but eventually, eventually, we, we want to see you back in here. We, we want to see you, not just have you see us. <laughs> you need to be here, and not just your one-hour checkmark on Sundays, but you need to be part of this community. You need to invest in the people that are sitting around you right now. Not just your nuclear family, but everybody. You need to carry their burdens and love them and care for them and know what their struggles are and be willing to walk with them and to serve them and to sacrifice of some of your time and some of your resources and much of your energy to be able to come together and love. Because that's how Christian community works. And if you want to be part of it, you got to be part of it. If you think one hour a week coming and listening to a sermon and singing three songs and then walking out the door before everybody else is gone is going to do it for you. It's not going to happen. you got to abide in love and be part of a community. You have to love the people in your workplace. You even have to love the people on Facebook with opposite political views. I'm so sorry, but you have to. I know they're hard. I know it's so tempting to just snipe or duck because they don't know, right? You have the truth. But you got to love them too. Love our enemies. When you start to practice a love that is hard, despite the fact that everything in you says, you know, revenge or I am right, and you start to sacrifice those things at the altar of the Lord, and you say, no, I'm going to love the people around me. Even when I'm tired, even when I'm weary, even when it hurts, you will start to become a person who more abides in Christ. You will feel more connected to the vine. There's no shortcut to this. There just isn't. You have to love. You have to come and show up. Three. Verse 10. You have to obey his commands. And here's the scary part. And actually love those commands. It's not enough to begrudgingly obey the things that God tells you to obey. Oh, the Lord says that I have to think this way, so I guess I have to, even though I don't want to. No. You have to learn to not just do the commands of the Lord, but to love and appreciate them. Man, does that go against our nature. Who here loves the law? <laughs> Whether it's, you know, the, I mean, there's some laws that are good. I'm, I'm a big fan of don't murder people. I don't like certain stop signs or speed limits. Maybe some of you really hate your HOA laws. And you wish you could just do the things... I live in Hudson, and their laws about stuff, it's just ridiculous. It makes me laugh every time. I don't fit into that. I want to build a shed in my front yard if I want to. Right? Like, and don't tell me how big the window is. That's just silly. But right? we, we hate laws. We really don't like them. We, we're not a fan of rules. If you're a kid and you, you know, your parents laid on the law for you, laid on the rules, you know, do you go, yes, another rule? No. But yet we have the people in Exodus getting so excited when the stone tablets come down. They're pumped. They celebrate. They rejoice. They're like, ten laws? Yes! Why? Why are they so excited about a bunch of rules? It's because rules, when they come from God, are what give us our identity as people. The law of the Lord isn't some arbitrary rule of you can't be outside after nine. No, what the law is, is a set of things that identifies us and sets us apart from the rest of the world as the people of God. That's why the, that's why the Jews were so excited when the stone tablets came down. What God was doing is he was making them his people. Hey, you have no idea what your identity is. You were slaves in Egypt. I led you through the sea and now you're just a 
bunch of random people with no purpose, no identity. Do you want to know what it, what it means to be mine? Here it is. Do these things. This is what it means. And so they rejoiced because they said, I, I, we now know. A person that is in God's identity is one that doesn't have other gods, one that loves his parents, one that doesn't get envious, one that doesn't commit adultery or murder or steal. Like These are things that identify us as God's people. And so they got excited. We need to learn over time, and this is so hard, to embrace the laws of the Lord and to say, you know what? I don't understand them all. I don't know why the Lord would call me to this. But I'm going to trust him that it's the ultimate way to live, that, that this law exists, that he puts it forth, that he sets it in front of me and asks me to obey it because it will make me more the way that I am designed to be. And by the way, God made you. He knows how you're supposed to work more than anyone else, more than your friends, more than your coworkers, more than even your family. He knit you together and then he gives you the instruction manual. I remember in college getting a DVD player, and the I ordered it cheap because I was poor in college, and the only instructions were in Chinese. I had no idea how to do this, how to set the thing up. Right? I would have given anything to have something that said, this is how this works. We have a book in front of us that tells us how this works. Learn to love that manual <laughs> and abide in him. If you obey his commands, if you start to do that, if you start to practice it, and if you start to learn slowly and painstakingly to love it, even in the opposition that the world gives us, you will start to abide more and more in him. And here's the last one. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, chapter 15 is, this is going to be a brilliant theological insight that you would have never thought of, but it's sandwiched between chapter 14 and chapter 16. I know, don't clap. <laughs> but, but chapter 14 and chapter 16 are the two places in John where Jesus, the predominant places, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come. I don't think it's by accident that this passage is sandwiched right between two promises of the Holy Spirit. Because I think the predominant way that we're actually able to do this is by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a dance that takes place between ourselves and the Spirit. We commit ourselves. We give ourselves. We start to obey. We start to pray more. We, we, we just we put a foot forward and we step into it a little bit. We say, you know what? I am going to show up more. I am going to get up 15 minutes earlier than I always do and just go downstairs and read a psalm and spend some time in prayer. 15 minutes. If you're getting so little sleep that 15 minutes earlier is killing you, you need to reevaluate your sleep schedule anyway. 15 minutes will not make a difference. I promise you. Or if you stay up later. Spend some time. Let the first thing you do to spend time with the Lord in the morning and do it for months. Don't do it for three days and go, nothing's changed. It's not working. It's a long game. You've got your whole life <laughs> to get better at it. Right? But we rely on the Holy Spirit. And we do the work. Guys, here's the key. The Holy Spirit's not a magic bullet. We can't just invite God into our life and pray some prayer in middle school and then expect the Spirit to just kind of steer our faith growth. We're just going to get up in the morning and, you know, he'll do the rest. No. It's an active, participating part. There's a favorite pastor of mine, a guy named Matt Chandler. He's, uh, 
He's at the Village Church in Texas. If you, if you want to listen to some extra sermons, he's always a good one. Um, but he, he has this phrase that comes up like every two months in books and sermons and whatever. And it's this. He says, no one stumbles into godliness. You will hear me say that at various times. Um, if I go a year without saying that in a sermon, I'm doing it wrong. No one stumbles into godliness. I think we live our lives mistakenly thinking that we somehow will just wake up tomorrow and be more Christ-like with no game plan or action plan as to how to actually accomplish that. Imagine if we did that with retirement savings. <laughs> we just get to our 60s and 70s and go, well, why is there no money in there? I thought it would just went in. No, you gotta put, you gotta put the work in. No one stumbles into. If you want to abide more in Christ, and he calls us to clearly, you got to take steps. What are the things this week, when you go home today, after you take your mother out to lunch, or take, take out lunch home, COVID world we live in, whatever you, whatever you feel safe doing, right? after you do that, go home, get a piece of paper, and start to brainstorm. What about your life, your daily routine, your weekly, monthly, yearly routine? What are you going to change to start to apply some of these things so that when you come back next year, you know, and set yourself a little one-year calendar, you can say, yeah, you know what? I really grew in the Lord. And over the year, I, you know, I didn't notice because it just slowly happened. But man, I'm not the same person I was that time that Vince preached on John 15. Things are different. Go home, get a piece of paper out, and write those things down. And even better, share them with somebody. <laughs> you know, here's some of the things I want to try. What do you think? Let's live that out in community. The Lord calls us to abide in him, to be connected to him. As Christians, if we aren't, we will slowly rot away and die and be cut off. It's the only way to life. There is no other way. You can't coast comfortably through life into, into heaven. It's not how it works. The Lord invites us to be active participants in our, in our walk, in our journey, in our growth and faith. And if we take those steps, he will be there. He will do his part. The spirit will do its work. He is faithful if we are faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we, we praise you that you are the one who allows us to grow. We praise you that you give us the tools and the know-how and the ideas through your spirit to be able to come to know you more grow closer to you. And so, Father, we pray that we would abide more in you. We pray that you would give us insights into our own spiritual lives. We pray that you would show us the ways that we need to make changes. We pray that you would show us the specific things in our lives that need to go, that we need to get rid of, that we need to make way for the things of you. Thank you that you love us enough to share this word with us. Thank you that you love us enough to give us things like metaphors of vine and branches so that we might understand how your kingdom works 
and how we can be connected to it. Thank you that you love us and thank you that you're always with us. Be with us this day as we go out into the world. Be with us as we interact with other people that don't know you and help us to share your grace with them. Be with mothers this day as we go out and celebrate that there would be joy and peace and laughter and recounting of stories that would all ultimately draw us closer to you. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,